welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Uh, Romans chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 30. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith? But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, but in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jews and Greeks. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we need you, and uh, we're not just saying that. We need you. We need you to encourage us. We need you to strengthen us. We need you to give us faith. We need you to clear away our doubts. We need you to convict us. We need you to draw us to repentance. There's so many needs in this room, and Lord, you are more than sufficient to meet every single person that's here. So we pray that you would, that you would come, that you would convict those who need conviction, encourage those who need to be encouraged. And Lord, we pray that if there's anyone here in this place that doesn't know you, and maybe doesn't know that they don't know you, Lord, we pray that you'd make that clear and that you draw them to yourself and that this would be the day of salvation for them. And Lord, we pray for all of your kids that are here, all of us who have already trusted in your son, Jesus. And we just pray, Lord, that this would be food for us, that this would be drink for us, that this would encourage the weary hearted and strengthen us and uh, lord we just pray that we leave full of joy for you and desiring to live for your glory because of what we've seen in the gospel and we pray this in jesus name amen so we're in a series in romans take about a year probably to, to finish it up and uh, romans has a few sections and i don't know if i mentioned this before but romans one through five is an explanation of the gospel and proofs of the gospel romans six through eight is kind of how the gospel transforms us And then Romans 9 through 11, which we started two weeks ago, this section of Romans 9 through 11 could be titled, What's Up with Israel? Okay, you could just title it, What's Up with Israel? What's up with Israel's response to Jesus? And at that time that Paul wrote this in the first century, so, you know, a few years after Jesus had ascended, 
the majority response of the Jews to Jesus was to reject him. And that doesn't seem strange to us because we've heard that a bunch of times, but it's really strange. It's really strange that this would happen. And you can imagine that Paul got asked a lot of questions about this. You go into a Gentile town and you tell them about the Jewish Messiah and they go, we heard that Israel doesn't want him. You know, and often Paul would have to explain that because it is strange. I mean, what's up with Israel's response to Jesus? I mean, if the whole Old Testament points to Christ and when Christ comes, he fulfills all these amazing prophecies and he comes and he does all these amazing miracles and he has this quality of life that's truly remarkable. No one's ever lived like Jesus. No one's ever loved like Jesus. No one's ever been a servant hearted like Jesus. Like there's no human being that's ever lived like Jesus. And then you have him voluntarily sacrificing himself on the cross for his enemies for their sin. And then just so they wouldn't miss it, he raises from the dead. Okay, And then he spends 40 days wandering around Jerusalem to prove that he's been resurrected. This is huge, right? And the majority response of the Jews at that time was to say, Jesus, no thanks. That's strange, right? I mean, you can capture the strangeness of this. What's up with Israel? What's up with Israel's rejection of the Messiah? And that's really what Romans 9 through 11 deals with. And we saw a couple weeks ago, we were in Romans 9, and Paul addressed what's up with Israel's rejection of Jesus and, and what it means for us and how would it relate to us. So we relate this way. A lot of the promises that God makes us in Romans 8 and in other chapters of Romans are the same promises that he made to Israel. For like in Romans 8, there's the promise of adoption and the promise of the Holy Spirit and the promise of glorification and the promise of the world to come. These were all promises made to Israel. But then Israel is at that time largely rejecting Jesus and won't inherit those promises. And so there's a problem there in Paul's mind and probably in the mind of a lot of people he talked to. Is this a failure on God's part to keep his promise? If he promised these things to Israel and they're not getting it because of their unbelief, is that a failure on God's part to keep his promise? And then you would ask the question of, if he failed to keep the promise to these people, is he going to fail to keep the promise to us? And that's what Paul was dealing with in Romans 9. If you take a look at Romans 9, 6, you'll see him answer that very thing. He goes, it is not as though the word of God has failed. It's not as though God's promises have failed. For not all who are descendant from Israel belong to Israel, and not all the children of Abraham are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. What he's basically saying is that God's promises haven't failed to Israel because God's promises were made to believing Israel, not just all of ethnic Israel. Not everybody that's a descendant of Abraham is someone, or not somebody that's just a descendant of Jacob, is somebody that receives the promise. The promise is received by faith. The promise is to believing Israel, not just ethnic Israel. And then he goes on to say, not uncontroversially, to say that the reason why some believe and some don't is by God's divine election. And if you have questions about that, I got a message from two weeks ago when we did Romans 9. But it's God's election. So those who believe, believe because God chose them. It's God's election, his choice, not their racial identity that makes them the children of the promise. And so what Paul's saying in Romans 9 is he's saying, you know, when large amounts of Jews are rejecting the Messiah in the first century, it isn't because God's promise is failing. It's because God's election is succeeding. This is exactly God's plan. And we're going to see that a little bit more in Romans 11. But it's God's election. Okay, so that's from the divine perspective of what's going on with Israel. So Romans 9's answer is, what's up with Israel? It's divine election. The answer in Romans 10, though, is different. The answer in Romans 10 has to do with human responsibility. 
We're going to look at it in two ways. Last time it was God's sovereignty is the reason this is happening. Now it's human responsibility. And we saw, and I know this is a little weedsy for those of you guys who haven't been with us, so I won't go too long this way. But remember in Romans 9, we saw that there's a tension. There's a tension between God's sovereignty and salvation and man's responsibility. Both are true. God is 100% sovereign in salvation, and yet human beings are 100% responsible when they reject the Messiah. Both are true. Tonight, what we're seeing in Romans 10 is the human responsibility side of the question, what's up with Israel? If Romans 9's answer was divine election, Romans 10's answer is human self-righteousness is what's up with Israel. What was going on in Israel rejecting our Messiah was human self-righteousness, according to Romans 10. And so what we're going to look at tonight is we're going to look at self-righteousness because that's a really fun topic. I know if I gave you guys a survey and said we want to hear about these, say self-righteousness. I know you guys love that. And so we're going we're gonna to look at what is, and it is a cool topic, by the way. We're going to look at what self-righteousness is, how it keeps us from knowing God and loving each other, and what can be done about it. So that's what we're going to look at tonight in Romans 10. So what we can see from this passage, guys, is there's actually two ways to run from God, not one. A lot of times we think that the only way to run from God is by rejecting religion and going after sin. Rejecting religion and, and going after sinful self-indulgence. Like, if you think of the prodigal son, that was the prodigal son, right? The younger brother. He squanders his, his father's money. He goes off into the far country and lives for sin, right? A lot of times we think that's the only way to reject God or to run from God. But there's another way to reject Jesus as Savior, and that's to try to be your own Savior. The other way to run from God is to be self-righteous. There's actually two ways to run from him. It can either be self-indulgence, where you prefer sin over Jesus, or it can be self-righteousness. You prefer your own goodness and righteousness over Jesus. There's two ways to run from him. If we think back to the story of the prodigal son, the older brother was the self-righteous one, right? He never left the home. He was always very dutiful. But the deal with him was is that he stayed home resenting both his dad and his younger brother. And it turns out that that older brother, that self-righteous brother, the one that always did everything right, was just as far from his father as the younger brother when he was in the far country. Maybe further, because the end of the parable ends with the father saying, shouldn't we celebrate? And it just ends that way. And you wonder, did the older brother ever give up his self-righteousness and come and join the party of the gospel that his younger brother was dead and then was now alive? And so there's two ways to run from him. A majority response of the Jews in Paul's day was to self-righteously reject Jesus as Messiah and to want to be their own Savior. Look again at Romans 9.30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. They didn't see a need for Jesus. They didn't see a need for a Messiah. They were content with the righteousness they had. They said, you know, I'm good enough. This should do. This should be enough. God should accept me based on my law keeping. And for for many people that have that kind of self-righteous mindset, guys, the gospel is extremely irritating. And we can see that. Take a look at verse 32 again. It says, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Turns out that if you're pursuing a life of self-righteousness, as they say you're a self-righteous religious person, or maybe you're a self-righteous non-religious person. If you're pursuing self-righteousness, if you're convincing yourself that you're a good person and God should accept you because you're, you know, you're doing what the Bible says, turns out the gospel will be very irritating to you. It says that it's a stumbling stone. 
we have this footrest in our bedroom. And when it's really dark at night and I get up, I jam the exact same toe into it every time. It's the pinky toe on the right foot. It just come across and it'll be bloody. You know, you're walking around the floor and you're like, why is my foot sticking to the floor? It's because I bloodied this little pinky toe, right? And I will bloody this pinky toe when it's already been bloodied. You think what you can move this, you know, and Tasha's even recommending this the other day. She's like, you can move that, you know, you could get rid of that. But that's what the gospel's like to the self-righteous, right? It's a stone of stumbling. It's a rock of offense. It's a slamming of the pinky toe into something over and over again. Because if you've convinced yourself that you're, if that's your project, that you're a good person, it's super irritating to be told you're a sinner. It's super irritating to be told, like I told my dad before he was saved, I told him that, you know, he said, well, what about somebody that's on death row? Charles Manson was the example. What about him? You know, if he at the last minute accepted Jesus, would he be saved? And I'm like, yeah, if he legitimately came to Christ, he'd be saved. He's like, no, can't deal with that. Like, this is a message I can't tolerate. And later when he became saved, he goes, he goes, yeah, that's because I didn't think I was a sinner. Once he saw himself as a sinner, he had no problem with that as being the case. We're not saying Charles Manson could just say something, but if he truly got converted, he'd be saved like us. And to hear something like that, if you're a self-righteous person, that's not fair because you've played by all the rules. You've done all the right things. You've kept the book. You've not been the partier. You've been the older brother in the home doing the right thing this whole time. And it is not fair that somebody comes from the far country, says they're sorry, and then is welcome in and has a party right? That's the majority response to the gospel during this time is Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And more religion won't cure that, you know? You think, well, maybe you just need more Bible reading or maybe you need more church or maybe you need more religious things. More religion won't fix that. Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Brothers and sisters, my heart desire to God is that they will be saved. He's talking about his Jewish kinsmen. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, they seek to establish their own. They do not submit to God's righteousness. Guys, being very religious is not necessarily a good thing. It's not necessarily a helpful thing. If you don't believe the gospel, it can be the worst thing. You can be very religious and even have a really intense passion for God, a passion for the Bible, and not know Him. So verse 2 says, he says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Isn't that interesting? They have a passion for God. Some God, some idea of God, some conception of God, but not according to knowledge. They don't understand the gospel. And then it says being ignorant of the righteousness of God, the righteousness you could have in Jesus. If you trust in him, you could be righteous in him. Being ignorant of that, they try to establish their own. Religions can be just an ignorant attempt to establish your own righteousness. And a lot of us could say, yeah, that's been me. Or we could definitely say that's people I know. That's people I've been around. That religion has not made them kinder, wonderful folk, you know, (laughs) it's made them worse. Self-righteousness also keeps us guys from from knowing and loving God, and it it makes it impossible really for us to love each other. And you can think of examples, intense, extreme examples of religious self-righteousness if you think about things like the Inquisition. It would be an example of, these people had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, right? This is a situation where these people felt very self-righteous. They felt like they were doing God's will, but they weren't. You could think about ISIS in our day. Or you could think about Paul, the guy that's writing this. This was his life before. He knows this because this was him. He's not casting stones at people, you know, saying, oh, how could they believe that? He's like, I was there. I was hunting people down. I thought I was doing the right thing the whole time. But he was ignorant of the righteousness he could have in Jesus. He tried to establish his own. 
I mean, those are extreme examples, but if you want more mild ones that we might relate to, there are things like a judgmental attitude. You know, you look at the world, you look at the lost, you look at our culture, and you look down your nose at them, and you have this like, how could they possibly believe these things? How could they be like this? There's this attitude of, I'm better than them, right? I know better than them. Or gossip, as gossip is an excellent example of self-righteousness. Nothing makes you feel so much better about yourself than if you can gossip and throw somebody under the bus, right? Feel a little, you know, twinge of righteousness, right? You feel a little rush of, of righteousness or superior mindset. But guys, you don't have to be religious to be self-righteous. Because you might be here and you're not a Christian and, you know, you're not much into church, but you arrived here for some reason that God has you here, which is awesome. But you might be thinking to yourself, that's what I hate about religion. Those people are so self-righteous. You know, that's exactly right. Yo, preacher, that's what I needed to hear. But you guys, you don't have to be religious to be self-righteous. One of the truly amazing things about our 21st century culture, our post-Christian culture, is how self-righteous it is. It seems really strange to me that we ended up here. I mean, I thought that we were going, you know, if I thought back to the 90s or early 2000s, I thought we were going as a culture to the whole non-judgmental, tolerant, accepting vibe. I thought that we were doing that. I thought we were doing this like hippie, you know, everybody accepts everybody. Everybody's real tolerant and inclusive. I thought that's what we were doing. And then what happens? It become a whole lot more judgmental, didn't it? And intolerant. Have you noticed? Our irreligious culture has a very religious feel. Our culture, there's very clear in our culture, very clear orthodoxies and creeds that you must confess to, or at least virtue signal to. And we just ended a month where every major corporation had to offer incense to the creed, right? Offer you know, a clear confession or virtue signal to the proper orthodoxies and creeds. I mean, this is not something where you have an option to do this. There's clear heresies and heretics, aren't there? I mean, you can think of the people in our culture that they're the heretics. Those are the people you need to denounce. Those are the things you can't say. There's also, surprisingly in the 21st century, censorship and book banning. Like, this is a really weird place we came to. I did not see this coming. You know, you think about, oh, yeah, you know, Puritan New England and Nathaniel Hawthorne and the Scarlet Letter and all that. Oh, that'd be terrible. We live in a secular version of that. It's so weird. How did this happen? You know, it's so odd. We have our own inquisitions and we have our own kind of excommunication and we have our own Scarlet Letters. Guys, it's a culture that is graceless, intolerant and unforgiving. And it's so humorless. Can you imagine trying to be a stand up comedian now? It'd be impossible. You're like, oh, I got a really funny one. You're like, mm, probably can't tell that one. You know, you have to be so careful. Like, isn't this weird? How did we get here? The stand-up comics, pray for them. You know, how are they supposed to make a living? It's crazy. But you can tell when a culture has no humor, something's gone horribly wrong. We're all so serious. Our culture guy says that it wants a unified world of love and diversity, which is a great aspiration. It's actually a Christian one. They have a Christian aspiration. Okay, to want a culture of love and diversity and inclusion, all these wonderful things, right? Where we all just love each other and have peace. That's a great aspiration. But it seems like we've got quite the opposite. And the problem, guys, fundamentally is, is that our post-Christian culture, it wants the kingdom without the king. Okay, so if you look at the Gospels and you see what Jesus has described the kingdom to be, of love and acceptance and peace and all those things, they want that, but they do not want the king. They want the kingdom, but not the king. That's what it means to try and be a post-Christian nation. It's not like a nation that's never been Christian. We have a sense for what we want, what we're attracted to, the things of the kingdom, but we don't want the king. 
We want the beautiful things He promises, but not Him. But guys, the kingdom doesn't work without the king. No kingdoms work without kings, okay? It won't work. And the thing is, guys, is that we have a self-righteousness problem, all of us, that only Jesus can solve. And so I think that would be a great thing for you to share with people that you know, is we all have this self-righteousness problem. It's a problem that only King Jesus can solve because, guys, we're moral creatures. Whether you're religious or not, we're constantly making moral judgments. We, we want to think of ourselves as morally upright, don't we? No one likes to feel like they're the scumbag in the room, right? We all want to feel morally upright, right? And one of the ways we convince ourselves that we're good moral people is by comparing ourselves to each other. I mean, if you don't have God's law to look at and go like, okay, this is what righteous is, and here's how I fall according to that, if you toss that out, what do you have? You look around at each other, and you go like, where do I fit into this? Am I one of the better people or one of the, the worst people? We come to see righteousness is like a ladder. You got people below you and people above you. The, the better people are up higher here, and kind of the bad people, the deplorable people are down here, right? And you're somewhere in between. And the more people that you can see as being worse off than you, the better you feel about yourself, right? And if you have some people above that and you kind of discover something kind of awful about them and move them down here, guess what? You're higher on the ladder and you feel better about yourself. I mean, that's what judgmentalism is about. That's what self-righteousness is about. It's convincing ourselves we're more moral people by you know, judging and gossiping and, and superiority and prejudice. And that's even where racism comes from. And all of this is coming from that. We're the good ones. We're the righteous ones. We're the good guys and they're the sinners. And guys, our public discourse is full of this kind of thing. I'm not on Facebook. Maybe you guys can tell me if you've seen this. Did you notice it? Does this describe anything you're seeing? Yeah, probably, right? Even though we're not a religious culture, guys, we're constantly making moral judgments and looking down on those we deem as sinners. And when we attempt to have this kingdom without the king, we're going to end up with a kingdom that's, that doesn't have forgiveness, that doesn't have grace, that's legalistic and self-righteous, humorless and unhappy. Welcome. I'm so fun. But that's what we have, right? That's what we have. That explains what we have. And isn't it weird that, you know, you abandon Jesus as king and that's what you get. You get a kingdom that's not a grace-filled, forgiving kingdom, right? And so what's the solution? Our text gives us two solutions. And the two solutions, whether you're self-righteous in the religious way or you prefer the irreligious, self-righteous type, right? What's the solution? The solution is two things, the law and the gospel. Strangely, the law is actually a solution to this. It's the law and the gospel. They both play a part in breaking up your self-righteousness. First solution to our self-righteousness is the law. Take a look at verse 4, chapter 10. For Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about a righteousness that is based on law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. First thing you have to do to have your self-righteousness broken down is you have to have it crushed by the law. Because it turns out there's only two ways to really be righteous or to pursue righteousness. One of them is to rely on your works 100% or to rely on Jesus' works 100%. It's either Jesus does all of your righteousness or you do it all. There's no going Dutch with Jesus. Like, we'll do Sula. There's no half-seas. There's no like, I can do most of it, but if you could give me a boost at the end, it's one way or the other. If you take a look here at verse four, he said, or verse five, it says, Moses writes about a righteousness that's based on law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. What it's basically saying is, if you're going to do them, you have to do them. That's the option. The law option is not great on a curve. You know, you're on a ladder. None of that. It's, you want to do the law? You do the law 100%. 
And the irony, guys, of legalism is that it doesn't take God's law seriously enough. Legalistic people don't take God's law seriously enough because they actually believe they can keep it. That's not taking it seriously. That's not looking it full in the face. If you're going to do the self-righteous route, the kind of bring your own righteousness route, knowing you need to know that your righteousness must be perfect. Verse 5 says, if you're going to do it, you got to do it. If you're going to go the law route, you have to do it all. No grading on a curve, no ladder of comparison. There's two rungs. The rungs are labeled sinner and perfect. Okay? So you imagine this ladder and you were kind of playing this game. And then you found out, like, there's sinner and perfect if you're going to go the law route. That's all you got. That's all you got. God's law shows us that we're all on the bottom rung. That's how it crushes our self-righteousness. This self-righteous law-keeping route. One of the big disadvantages, according to this text, of the religious self-law-keeping you know, law keeping route, one of the biggest disadvantages of that route is that it's impossible. Okay? That's a big disadvantage. Because I'm going to give you two ways to God. You know, There's this way, according to the law and your own righteousness, that's impossible. You're like, oh yeah, I'll take that one. No, this one's impossible is what he's saying. And then there's another one that's possible. And so let's look at that one. The second thing that crushes our self-righteousness is the gospel. The gospel, guys, is the route that has the advantage of not being impossible. Would you like a not impossible route? Then you want the gospel. Take a look at verse 6. But the righteousness based on law says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. What does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. The gospel, guys, doesn't demand anything impossible from you. Isn't that wonderful? It doesn't say, you know, you need to ascend into heaven and bring Christ down, verse 6. Or you need to somehow descend into the grave and pull Christ up, right? It doesn't say those things because Jesus actually done those impossible things on your behalf. doesn't ask you to do anything impossible. Jesus has already done the impossible for you. The gospel route demands something totally possible. Totally, and I want you guys to get this. Like, If you're not a believer tonight or you haven't come to Jesus, I just want you to hear that the gospel is demanding something of you tonight that is totally possible. Okay, It's within your grasp. Look at verse 8. It says it's asking for something that's near to you. Okay, Near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. The gospel... You want to be saved and right with God tonight. God is demanding something from you that is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. Do you have a mouth? I'm thankful to see that most people here do. Do you have a mouth? Do you have a heart? Okay. If you have a mouth and you have a heart, you have everything that's needed tonight to to respond to the gospel. Here it is, verse 9. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Jesus raised him from the dead. And then what's the rest? You will be saved. Wow. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? And I know some of you are like, well, it's not that simple. It is that simple. That's what it says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you're like, really? That's it? Yes. Take a look. He talks more about it. And he doesn't go, here are the exceptions. No. He explains more of this amazing thing. Look at verse 10. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. 
For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you guys ever read anything so beautiful as that? Look at what Jesus gives you. He says he'll justify you. What does justify mean? It means to make you righteous. It means to cover you in Christ's righteousness like a robe so that you're considered righteous in Jesus. He says in verse 10 that he will save you. If you trust in Jesus, you are saved by God, from God, for God. You're actually saved by the action of God, by God, from him, from his judgment, so you can have him as your treasure. This is amazing, okay? It also says, and maybe you'll like this. I really like this in verse 10. You will not be put to shame. Because we know at the day of judgment, all shame is going to be exposed, except the shame that's covered by the blood of Jesus. You will not be put to shame. That is a great promise. There's more. Look at verse 12. It says that you will have Jesus's riches bestowed on you. Jesus's, so we're not just talking made right with God and, and not experience his judgment, but you actually have Jesus's riches, which he deserves, bestowed on you, poured upon you. You know, some people say, you know, what does grace mean? And they say it's an acronym. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what this is talking about, is that you would have Jesus's riches bestowed on you for all eternity, that you'd be treated as if you've lived the life he lived. Have you taken God up on that offer? Think about it. Have you taken God up on that offer? And you're like, I'm not sure. Well, then you should if you're not sure. But have you taken God up on that offer? And if you haven't taken God up on that offer, you really, really have to ask yourself tonight, why? Seriously, because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. You go, well, I have a lot of doubts. It's like, well, let's work that out. You know, tell me what you got. You know, we'd like to talk to you about that. Or, hey, I've got this. And you know what? He does not say here that you have to believe 100% or have just kind of amazing level of faith. He's, he's made it very simple. Confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart. He's raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. You know, so if you haven't taken God up on this offer, like this offer is amazing. Is it not amazing? Was there something else you were looking for? Okay, because this is like really good news, okay? And if you're not taking it, you have to ask yourself why. You really should ask yourself why. Wouldn't that be a legitimate question to ask? If you're offered this truth and you won't take it, and the two things from this text that I would want you to ask is, do you love your sin too much? Do you love your sin more than Jesus? That would be one option, one possibility. Or do you love your own rightness more than Jesus? That would be the other possibility. I don't want to come to Jesus because he says I'm a sinner, and I don't want to own that. Those are the two possibilities, guys. But guys, Jesus is way better than your sin. Your sin is fleeting. Whatever you're getting out of it now is like, it's a law of diminishing returns. It won't be much longer, right? And it's not going to last through eternity. That's for darn sure. That'll be taken away from you. And so Jesus is way better than your sin. And Jesus is way better than your righteousness. If you think like, I don't want to admit I'm a sinner and, you know, I'm, I'm too upright to need Jesus, you really need to take a closer look. And maybe ask around. Do you know, there's people near you that could confirm whether this righteousness you think you have is real. And there's a lot of people here that could testify right now for you. It's not there. And why would you want to rest and worship that when you could worship Jesus and, and find your joy in him? Look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What does that mean? It means that Christ is the end of trying to use the law to be 
righteous before God. Christ is the end of that. Like you're going to always try and kind of pursue your own righteousness until you meet Christ, and then that's the end of that. <laughs> that's the end of trying to find your righteousness in the law. And I would just pray, like, for those of us who have come to Christ, that tonight we're really enjoying this truth. And for those of you who haven't, that you would come to him. Is Christ the end of your pursuit of righteousness? And what's cool is not only does it make this make us right with God, but it helps us to love and value other people because it kind of destroys that self-righteousness ladder. We don't have to compare ourselves to others. We don't have to try and figure out who the scumbags are and, you know, who our competition are, right? No, we don't have to do any of that because there's two wrongs, perfect and sinner. And through the cross, Jesus has shown us we're clearly on the bottom rung, sinner. And then by the cross, he has put us on the top rung, perfect, even though we're not. Isn't that awesome? The ladder is destroyed. We're all sinners in need of grace. But in Jesus, we all are treated as if we're righteous. And guys, neither our secular culture can do that or religion. And I think we're seeing that, right? We've all seen religion can't give you this. Just going to encourage it. Problem with our secular culture and religion other than gospel is it only encourages you to be self-righteous. That's how most religions work. Keep you working to build your self-righteousness. And our culture, guys is super encouraging self-righteousness right now. We can only find it in the gospel. Does our, our self-righteousness get crumbled because it both humbles us and gives us hope. It shows us we're sinners and that we're loved by Christ. So what's up with Israel? What's up with Israel? What's up with Israel's rejection of the Messiah? On the divine level, it's divine election. We saw that a couple weeks ago. On the human level, it's self-righteousness. But there's more to this. What's going on in God's plan? Why has Israel become hardened to her Messiah? What's going on? And we're going to see that in Romans 11. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we're thankful for this message that is not something where we have to try to ascend to heaven on our own or descend into the grave and come back or even just try to live a life that would somehow make us right with you. It's a vain pursuit and you've totally freed us from it. And I just pray, Lord, that everyone that's here, and nobody would walk out that door in any way trying to rely on their own righteousness, that they would just receive this good news, bask in it, enjoy it, have this be the joy of their heart, have this be the fuel for them to follow you. Lord, make us people that do obey your law and do follow you, but we do it completely out of joy. We do it out of gratitude. We do it out of thankfulness. I'm not trying to earn anything from you. We love you and we appreciate what you've done and we really love to live in a way that's like Jesus, the way that you've commanded because, because we love you. We just pray you keep us there. Keep our hearts healthy in that spot. We pray, Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper and as we worship, Lord, that we do it with happy, full hearts, happy, full, gospel-filled hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.